The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Philippians 4, 8 through 13. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm a musician, songwriter by trade, and uh, in, in 2021, I put a record out called Poet Priest Volume 1, or Poet Priest was the name of the record, and, and I, I spent a ton of money recording this record, and when I got done with recording the record, I found that I had no more money to uh, promote the record. And uh, it's really funny, the day and age we live in, you spend thousands of dollars to make a record in order to give it away for free. It's kind of crazy the way things are right now. Um, So I was talking with my marketing team, and we were trying to come up with low-cost ideas of how to kind of get the news of this record out. So somebody said to me, hey, why don't you just take some of the themes out of your record and begin to, uh, you know, write about those things? And, and post them and, and see what happens. Well, a funny thing happened. These, these uh, little mini essays, as I like to call them, they it slightly went viral. They, they far surpassed any of my musical endeavors, which is fairly insulting. Um, but uh, I took it as the grace of God. And at some point in that journey, uh, I had a friend say to me, you should write a book. And so that's exactly what I did. And I, I have this, this little book here. It's, it's called Poet Priest Volume 1. And it's actually got a picture of me with red-headed kid with glasses. I was, I was in fourth grade when I took this picture. I was in fourth grade, I think, in 1982. I, selfies are not a new thing, you guys. I literally turned a camera around and took this in 1982. Like Selfies have been around for a really long time. But I like to describe this book as a, a, a book about God with pictures of God. So there's, if you ever wanted to see what God actually looked like, he's in the pages of this book. Not really, metaphorically speaking. But we have a bunch of them for sale. But I'd like to give one copy of this. Does anybody happen to want this book? Okay, that guy right there. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was ready. That's what I was looking for. So, yeah, we had a great time here last night, and um, how many of y'all were with me last night? 
hanging out. Okay, thank you all for being here. So you, you kind of know um, what I'm a little bit about. Um, I, my wife tells me that I only have one sermon or one message that I'm carrying in my life, and I think she's, she's probably right about that. But um, one of the things that I feel like I've been working on my entire life, whether it was through my songwriting or my poetry or my writing or even in my preaching, the thing that I have been working on is how do I live or how do I interpret my life when it seems like God doesn't intervene, okay? I was raised in a Pentecostal tradition, charismatic tradition, where there was an emphasis on the miraculous. There was an emphasis on the supernatural power of God to uh, work in the life of the believer. And, and because of that emphasis, we were people with great expectation and great hope. We were, we were believing that God was actively moving in our lives. And, and so when a person, a human being, actively hopes for things, there is something, there's a dynamic within that that you will be confronted with. You will be confronted with your hopes being dashed on occasion. You may have a season in your life where you need a prayer answered or you need a miracle. There was a song in the um, 1980s by this band called Mike and the Mechanics, and they had a song called All I Need is a Miracle. Have you ever been there? All you need is a miracle. It's like, God, this is all I need is a miracle. And then you come into the moment where the thing that you need is the thing that you don't get. Have you ever been there? I was a weird kid. Uh, I think I've always been anticipating bad things happen to me, happening to me. I don't know why that is. It could just be my wiring. I don't want to bring up the Enneagram here, but I may be an Enneagram 4. I'm not sure. Um, my wife thinks that's a bunch of malarkey, and she's probably right. She's usually right on most things. But anyways, you know, I, I tend to veer toward the skepticism and pessimism of the world. And, um, but when I was a teenager, I did the most bizarre thing. I, I, I took a, a roll of butcher paper about, I don't know, three, four feet wide, and I wrote the, in all the verses of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and I plastered it all over my room. How weird is that? But I just remember being in church one day, hearing the story of the guy who wrote that song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The man who penned those words had just lost four of his kids in a shipwreck. And when I heard that story, I thought to myself, my goodness, I've experienced loss in my life. I've experienced the non-intervention of God in my life. If there's a faith, if there's a way to bear the burden of that thing, I want to know what that is. So today I want to talk to you about how to interpret your life when God is not intervening on your behalf. 
And then I want to talk to you about how to accurately interpret your life when he does intervene on your behalf. Because your life isn't going to be all of one or the other. You will have both happen to you. Okay? So today, I don't know if, you, if you've been paying attention to the world that you're living in, but I've been paying attention. And what I've been noticing is that there's this incredible amount of tumultuousness happening in culture. There's an incredible amount of anxiety happening in the church. And for many of us, the tumultuousness that we're witnessing, the anxiety, it's not happening on some faraway societal level. It's not some abstract theory going on out there, but it has actually come into our own personal lives. And, and when we're disrupted with anxiety and tumult, these things beg questions. Is God real? And if he is real, is he faithful like people claim that he is? I guess the question really is, what does the faithfulness of God look like? And if you're like me, maybe you've had moments in your life where you've needed help from God, you've needed a miracle, you've needed an answered prayer, but all that you heard was silence and all that you saw was nothing. Has anybody been there before or is it just me? Put your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. All right. There's this woman in the Bible who has become one of my favorite people in all of Scripture. She's like the female version of Job. I, I like the book of Job. I know Job gets a lot of, you know, flack, but I, I personally love that book. But in this, in this particular woman, when I look at the witness of Scripture about her life, I see so much of my own life. And I love, don't you just love that God has given us some anti-heroes in the Bible? The pessimists of the world need their people too, right? Also, I should add this. If you're reading the Bible and you're seeing yourself in the hero of every story, you might be reading it wrong. All right? But Naomi is the lead character or the lead off character in the book of Ruth. It's Naomi's tragic life that sets the stage for one of the most important chapters in all of the story of God. But today, I don't want to emphasize the redemptive end of the book of Ruth. I want us to really take a good look at the tragic life of the woman, Naomi. I'd like to tell you about the lack of miracles in Naomi's life. So here's what was going on with Naomi and her husband at the opening of this story. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land of Judah where they live. There's also marauders. There's, there's outside forces that are coming through their country and wreaking havoc. There's tumultuousness in the land. There's not enough food to eat. God is not intervening on behalf of these people. So what they have to do is they have to go away. And in their going away, 
They leave their homeland, sojourn to a strange land, and become strangers in a place that they don't know. So in the place that is foreign to them, all of a sudden, Naomi loses her husband. He dies. Sometimes we have to be careful when we read the text of Scripture because we'll look past these things that happen and the tyranny of the story becomes so familiar to us that we miss the actual human cost of these stories. But Naomi starts off by being exiled from her land to a strange place where she's not known, and then she loses her husband. Losing a spouse is a tragedy, but it gets worse for her. Not only does she lose her husband, but she loses her two sons. Y'all, that's a lot of grief for one person to bear. To become a widow at that time, that point in history, was to be at the lowest levels of society. You no longer had provider. You you no longer had provision. You were essentially a beggar at that point. So this is Naomi's interpretation of God's lack of activity in her life. She sees what's going on in her life, the lack of God intervening And God's non-intervention becomes her testimony. What God didn't do affects the words that come out of Naomi's mouth. And how can you blame her? When I am losing big time, I'm not saying things like, oh, God is good all the time. I mean, bless people who are there, but that's just not me. But Naomi, this is what her testimony is. The Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi said, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has afflicted me. She even goes so far as to attribute all of her misfortune to God. She says, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And then she goes so far as to change her own name. Eventually, somebody says, oh, look, there's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means very bitter. In all fairness to Naomi, I'll have to tell you that is exactly how I would respond. How Naomi interpreted the lack of miracles in her life is exactly how I would have interpreted it. But here's the thing, y'all. One of the main themes of God's story is this. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. When it seems like God is doing absolutely nothing is actually when he is doing his greatest work. You see this theme in all of scripture. When it seems like God is not doing anything is when he is doing his greatest thing. The deal is this. We have to be very careful 
how we interpret our lives. Because sometimes it seems like God is not doing anything. We come to a conclusion about who God is. We make a judgment about what he is doing. And we often interpret it very incorrectly. The reason why we need to be careful about how we judge or interpret God's seeming lack of intervention in our lives is that when we condemn God or judge God or get mad at God, we lose the tenderness in our hearts that we once had. I know that I've had seasons of real tenderness toward the Lord in my life. I remember as a, just as a, a young adult, as a young believer, I had so much faith in my heart, so much belief, so much um, just, awe. I was in awe of God all the time. And, and you, might, you might know the story well. You know, you, you start out strong in your faith and then you hit some bumps in the road in your life and things don't seem like they once did. There's a tenderness that's available to us with God through the life of the Spirit that we can always cultivate in our lives that keep us open to whatever it is God has. We, we sang about it this morning in the second song this morning. Man, I just have to tell you guys, just as a side note, when you guys were leading that opening song, I, I turned to my wife and I said, I've not had this experience in a really long time, but I feel like I'm about to break down and burst into tears because I feel the Spirit of God so strongly in this room right now. And I was just... I, I felt tender towards the Lord in a way that I hadn't felt in a really long time. Aren't you so glad that the Holy Spirit is real and he meets with his people when they gather together? You know, um, there's, there's these habits that we have, like going to church every Sunday is so important but we need the Spirit of God to reawaken us in these moments that become overly familiar to us. This is actually one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit in our life. I don't like to talk about God as a utilitarian, but God does do things with a purpose. And he sends his Holy Spirit into gatherings of believers so that they can stand in awe and wonder of the mightiness of God. And it's not going to happen every Sunday. You won't have fireworks every day of your life. But my goodness, don't you just need an injection every now and then? I mean, you should stay married for your entire life. And some days, staying married is just like getting up. And it's a victory if you haven't had an argument with your spouse, right? You're doing good. But occasionally, you need to look into your spouse's eyes and just be like, wow, I really love that person. I enjoy that person. That person's wonderful. I want to kiss that person. I want to be kissed by that person. You know, there's, there's more to marriage than just the utilitarian virtues of it, right? 
It's a good thing. It's, it's the, the foundational building block of society, but marriage is more than just something that's useful. It's also beautiful. Church is both useful, but it's extremely beautiful. I tell people this all the time. You know, when you're driving through the South and there's a decrepit little Baptist church over here and a de- decrepit little Methodist church over here, doesn't look like anybody's going there, doesn't think, seem like anything cool is happening there, I say you would not want to imagine a world that didn't have those decrepit little churches everywhere because that is the salt and light of the world that's going on in those places. Even though it seems small and insignificant and unimportant, God is working even when we can't see it. So I'm sorry for digressing. They told me to keep it within like 15 minutes, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go 45. For just, just forgive me in advance, OK? But here's the thing. There was another person in this story who witnessed and experienced the same thing that Naomi experienced, but had a different conclusion than Naomi. Ruth saw and experienced God's mismanagement of Naomi's life. We know from the text that Ruth saw with her eyes Naomi's life. She knew that Naomi served Yahweh, the God of Israel. Ruth knew that famine had driven Naomi into Moab. Ruth witnessed the lack of provision in Naomi's life. Ruth felt the grief of Naomi losing her husband and her sons because one of those sons was her husband. Ruth had also lost her husband. Naomi's life was undeniably marked by tragedy, loss, and grief. And by all appearances, Naomi's God did not do what gods are supposed to do. Gods are supposed to provide, they're supposed to deliver, and they're supposed to save. That's what good gods do. And from all accounts, from all honest accounts, Naomi's God failed to do all of those things. So by all accounts, Naomi's testimony was accurate. And yet, Ruth interpreted God's non-intervention in an absolutely stunning way. I just saw this a few weeks ago, actually, and when I came across it, it blew me away. I've read this book dozens of times in my life. This is what I love about scripture. It's going to take you a lifetime to, to wrangle it. Don't think that you know the Bible yet. If you think that you already understand everything that's been between those two covers, you will talk yourself out of so many good things that God wants to say. But Ruth does this thing that is so incredible. Naomi says this, God has dealt bitterly with me. And Ruth says, your God will be my God. Who does that, y'all? Who makes a declaration after they see a God not intervene, not provide, not deliver, not save, and then has the audacity to say, 
I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Nevertheless, your God will be my God. Naomi said, God has afflicted me. Ruth said, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Naomi said, the Almighty has brought misfortune on me. But Ruth said, wherever you stay, I will stay. Wherever you go, I will go. Who in their right mind would enter the fray of that kind of misfortune and proclaim that God, the one who seemed to offer nothing but trouble, would be their God? My goodness, y'all, there's something here for us. There's some kind of invitation into to a faith that's so deep and so rich that you can travel through any kind of cultural tumult, any kind of widespread ubiquitous deconstruction. You can travel through any kind of tragic loss and come up with this interpretation. No matter what happens, your God will be my God. You know, in the historic church, man, women take a lot of heat But I'm telling you from the witness of scripture, women are some of the most heroic people in our midst. And if we're not listening to the woman Ruth in this moment, we are missing out. Ruth had eyes to see through the lack of miracles in Naomi's life. Y'all, there's this great joke. My kids hate this joke, but I'm telling it anyways. I don't care. There's these, these sociologists in the 1980s, and they took these kids, and they started running all these tests because they wanted to figure out how kids would respond to different toys that they put in front of them. And, and there was like a group of 100 kids, and out of these 100 kids, the majority of them were pessimists. On the scale of pessimism and optimism, Of these 100 kids, most of them were pessimists. So they took the 99 kids and they put them in a room and they gave them the best of everything. They gave them the best toys, the best candy, the best food, the best movies. They gave them everything that they wanted. And then they went in and talked to them. They took like tests and they asked the kids questions and they said, How's it going with the best of everything that money can buy? And the kids were mad. They were complaining. They didn't have enough stuff. They wanted more. They wanted the providers to give them more satisfaction, more whatever it is that video games give a person. They wanted to just go to the height of human experience all the time. And they were, although they had everything that money could buy, they were totally unhappy. And then they stuck the one optimist kid in a room full of horse manure. And they were watching that kid through the glass. You know, they were looking at him. And he's walking around, door to door to door, like having the best time of his life. And they're like, something is wrong here. Something's going on. And they go in and ask this kid, what is going on with him? And he looks at those scientists and he says, standing over that steaming pile of horse poop with all of its fresh, grassy smell, 
the heat still coming up, he looks at those people and he says, you can't fool me. I know there's a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) The way we interpret the world directly affects the tenderness of our hearts. Dare I say, the state of your heart currently is more affected by the lens that you look through than anything else. We have to walk circumspectly through our lives, careful not to misjudge what God is doing. In fact, if there were a practical way of doing it, it would be better just not to say anything at all about your life than to misjudge what God is doing. Like maybe you're in just a complete mystery at the moment. The best thing at that moment to say is, I have no idea what's going on. So I want to tell you one more story, and then I'll close. Am I good on time, pastors? All right. So I've talked to you this morning so far about how to understand your life when it seems like God is not moving. There's There's a passage, there's a story in the New Testament that gets me really excited in the same way that this Old Testament passage does. But the Apostle Paul and his friend Silas, they're they're doing work in some city, and a young girl who's possessed by a demon comes out, and she's harassing them for a few days. Finally, Paul gets tired of it, and he turns around, and he says, hey, demon, come out of that girl in the name of Jesus. She's freed, and the people who were making money on her fortune-telling skills get really mad at Paul. There's a confrontation between light and darkness in that moment. Y'all, when you are as carriers, as followers of Jesus, as carriers of the kingdom of God within you, as you go into the world and you, you bring the light of Jesus into the world, it's not that there will never be confrontation. Sometimes there's confrontation. We can't get away from that. We don't go looking for it, but... Sometimes that's just what happens. But the story goes like this. Paul and Silas get dragged before the authorities, and they're they're flogged. They're beaten. Without a trial, they're beaten. And then they're put into chains, and they're, they're, they're sent to jail. And in Acts chapter 16, it says that when they got into the prison... Paul and Silas do this really interesting thing. They start singing praise to God and praying. Now, full disclosure, if I'm dragged before the authorities and flogged and put in jail without a trial, the first thing that I'm doing is calling my lawyer and I'm suing somebody. I'm probably not singing praise to God at that moment. 
I, I mean, Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew his rights. He could have gone after these people right away. But it's not what he did. He and Silas lifted their voices. They lifted their song and began to praise God. They began to pray. They began to interact with the living God. This really interesting thing happens. While they're singing, there is a miracle of provision and deliverance that takes place in a profound way. There's a mighty earthquake and the, 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 their chains begin to fall off, fall off and the doors of the jail, they, they break off, they break loose and the doors swing wide open. Now, I mentioned earlier that I come from a Pentecostal background. And I've heard this story preached more times than I can tell you. And here is always the interpretation I was given. When you praise, the chains fall off. When you sing to God, the doors are open. The captives are set free. And I think that that's a fair interpretation of the text. Because there really is something to singing that does set us free. But the interpretation of that story that was always given to me sounded like this. You're going through trouble. You got troubles. You got stuff in your life that you can't deal with. All that you need to do is praise God, and God will send the miracle, and you will have the means and the way to escape your problems. That worshiping God is a way to, to invite the miraculous, to invite God's intervention into your life as a means for you to escape your trouble. This is incredible what I'm about to tell y'all. Paul was a man who always... I mean, he was continually seeing miracles in his life. Miracles of salvation, miracles of deliverance, miracles of provision, all of these things. But Paul never interpreted miracles as a means for him to escape trouble. He saw the miracle provision of God as a way into trouble. He never saw God moving on his, his behalf as a way to escape, but he, he always saw it as a way into. So here's what happens in this story. The earthquakes, the chains fall off, the doors open, and the text says that the jailer, seeing that the prisoners had an opportunity to leave, takes out his sword and is about to kill himself because he knows that the penalty for letting prisoners go free will be his death. But Paul, interpreting correctly the miracle of his own deliverance, says this from his cell to the jailer, do not harm yourself. We are all still here. What did Naomi, what did Ruth say to Naomi? 
She says, where you stay, I will stay. After experiencing the non-intervention of God, Ruth says to Naomi, your God will be my God, and wherever you go, I am going to go, and wherever you stay, I am going to stay. And Paul, after seeing the intervention of God, doesn't see his means of escape, his way of escape, but he shouts out, his proclamation is, do not harm yourself. We are all here. We are going to stay. And the wonderful thing that happens as uh, an effect of Paul's proper interpretation of his life is that the jailer and all of his household are baptized and come to faith in Christ. Y'all, I have had years, these past, maybe four or five years, where I have been so, um, how would I say it? I, I, I have just been in inner turmoil because I have been so afraid of what's been happening in our country, what's been happening in our world, between the politics of everything, between all of the just stuff that's going on within the body of Christ over the last few years. I, I could probably honestly say that, that I've had moments of despair feeling like God had abandoned us, that there were no moves of his spirit left in his, his back pocket, that we were left to ourselves, that we were left to our own devices, that we were gonna have to make this thing work on our own. And if that's the case, if we've got to do all this on our own, man, I've, I'm pretty sure it is a lost cause at that point. But when I'm looking at these two stories in, in the text of scripture, I'm so filled with hope and joy because what I realize is that none of this depends on us. The only thing that we are really, that's required of us is to say yes to the Lord in whatever comes our way in our lives. To keep our hearts tender. Maybe to abandon our own political opinions about the world, our own religious opinions about the world. I feel like a lot of us are so consumed by our own opinions that we've grown a little bit hard-hearted in our lives. I'm so thankful that the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us today to penetrate the hardness of our hearts, to penetrate the darkness and confusion that, that we have. And maybe you have gone through years worth of difficulty. Amy and I have this running joke. Like we're 48, and from the years of 38 until this moment, we, our testimony is we've had a hard decade. We didn't know hard decades existed in our 20s and early 30s. We used to think of like, we used to think seasonally, like, People had a bad season, and a season was like either a couple weeks or a few months at the most, right? We didn't know you could have one difficult thing happen after another over the years. Because like somewhere in your mind, you think that like there are suffering quotas, and once you meet your quota, then you're like, you're scot-free, right? It's not the way life works. Life is mysterious. Like life is, um, is inscrutable. We have a, we can't. 
We can't make sense of it all the time. But I believe that God has designed it that way in order to draw us into himself. There is no better place to meet Jesus than between a rock and a hard place. Oh, that'll preach. Y'all should write that down. (laughs) Seriously, we're trying to like build our lives for comfort and ease. And we get so confused when comfort and ease is not kind of like the norm for us. And when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, we become mad at God and God's saying, no, this is a gift to you. This is my gift to you because you have no more options except for me at this point. And he, his spirit is inviting us into the depths of fellowship with him in a real and profound way. And, and y'all, I'm so hopeful for the church at this point. I know the Barna reports. I've read all the church growth and, and non-growth statistics. I don't care what any of the doomsdayers or naysayers say. There are things within the body of Christ that must be dealt with, that must be confessed, that must be repented of. I think that there's a lot of critique that is being leveraged against the church that is fair. And we should make amends where we can. But we do not need to make apologies for being the body of Christ. And we don't have to worry that this project is a failed project. God is on his throne. His spirit is still moving. And he cares about it more than anybody else in the universe. And he cares about it in a corporate sense, but he also really cares about it in an individual sense, with you in your, your own life. Your life matters. It matters before the Lord. Have I made any sense today? Okay. Let me close in prayer. I like to pray, when I, when I, when I pray, I, I like to invite the Holy Spirit. And I know that he is always present. I understand that. But sometimes we need to grow in our awareness of the Holy Spirit, don't we? So right now, I think this is an opportunity for God to heal where maybe you've been wounded in seasons of your life where it seems like God hasn't intervened on your behalf. I think this is a really good moment to do business with God in that way. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, sweet Holy Spirit, I am so thankful for this moment in time as it is the providence of your grace to heal, to restore, to deliver, and to provide. And Lord, we we repent of misinterpreting the way you do things in our lives. We repent and we ask you to forgive us and we ask you to lead us into your wisdom and into your grace in order that we can grow in tenderness towards you, to grow in tenderness towards each other, and to grow in tenderness toward the world that we're inhabiting. 
Lord, we thank you for building us to be vessels of your sweet Holy Spirit. And our prayer is that this week, heading into this week, that our awareness would grow profoundly of who you are to us, who you are to us in our lives. And we ask that you would move in power on our behalf and on behalf of our community, on our church, our schools, and our places of employment. We ask that you would move, Lord Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.